Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Paul Okervold and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome to a very special episode of the House Culture Podcast, hosted as always by me, the House Culture Managing Editor, Matt Rouse. As this is such a special one, I'm sure some of you might be tuning in for the first time, so welcome to all those new listeners. We are House Culture, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Our home is on Instagram at HouseCultureNet, so please come and join us and over 100,000 others for a daily dose of dance music decadence. And if you haven't already, get those fingers dusty by digging through our back catalogue of podcast guests. We've featured many superstar DJs, including Danny Tanaglia, David Morales, Fatboy Slim, Danny Rampling, Graham Park, Tall Paul, Dave Seaman and Brandon Block. We've also sat down with many of the new school of DJs like Purple Disco Machine, Josh Butler, Andrea Oliva and Alan Fitzpatrick. However, we don't just stop at the DJ booth because we are house culture. We're interested in all of the stories that relate to our scene. So in our previous episodes, you'll also find conversations with Pikes Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle, Manumission founders Mike and Claire, co-founder of iconic record label Strictly Rhythm Gladys Pizarro, and the person who brought dance music to Glastonbury, Malcolm Haynes. We guarantee satisfaction and make sure all of our guests have a fascinating tale to tell. So hit that follow button to keep yourself informed of when a new episode drops. Now, in this episode, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce a man who has had one of the biggest influences on the dance music scene as we know it. His contribution cannot be underestimated and... As an inspiration to many, I might not be sat here talking to you today if I hadn't followed his career over the years. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but our guest in this special episode is the one and only Paul Oakenfold. 
In our chat, you'll hear our young Paul, obsessed with working in the music industry, manifested his own big break. I wrote to every record label for a job, and guess what? They all turned me down. So I went to New York, and I created my own job. How a small island in the Mediterranean changed his life and altered the course of music history. Ibiza. He sensed that there was change. There was clubs, there was electronic music, there was the DJ in the corner, there was the guys at the bar, there was the girls dancing around their handbag. No one really was focused and was into the music or the DJ. This was the birth of electronic music as we know it today. In that moment, I was like, oh my God, just what kind of sounds were coming out of those early post-Ibiza parties he set up? The Future Club was based on the sound of Balearic. Whatever worked through a story of music, that was Balearic. Spectrum and Land of Oz was pure Acid House. It was the birth of Acid House. And how he built such an evangelical following with his residency at one of the UK's most revered clubs. So I tried to build on that concept of having my own sound, tunes that no one had, the arrangement of the set, the story that I wanted to tell, the feelings that I wanted to invoke, and how I wanted to leave you in a euphoric state, led to cream. Now as you'll hear, Paul sat down with us ahead of his gig in Brighton that night, and in the middle of his European tour, he'd literally just flown in from Amsterdam, and although he was very tired, ever the professional, who was happy to chat about his career for your listening pleasure. I hope you enjoy this very special episode. This is Paul Oakenfold. House Culture Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. So I'm sat in a hotel room in Brighton and opposite me is a man who is not only very tired but also a genuine legend within the dance music community, a pioneering DJ, producer, remixer and record label mogul, all-round superstar. His name is Paul Oakenfold and I'm ecstatic to welcome him to the House Culture podcast today. Where is he? I can't see him. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Matt. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thank you. That was a nice intro. You're welcome. You're welcome. So obviously we want to dig into aspects of your hugely influential career. But before we get there, can we go back to the beginning and find out where you grew up and how did you first discover music that you loved? Where did I grow up? We moved around. I was born in Marland, mm-hmm. lived in North London, moved out of London. My parents thought that was the best thing at the time. And then I moved away, spread my wings, travelled and kind of done what I suppose most people do. But in terms of music, where did it start? Was It started with my father, really. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a musician. Mm-hmm. He played in a skiffle band. Okay. Skiffle band is an, an alternative rock band at the time. You know how you have reggae and then you have lovers rock? So yeah. reggae comes... From Jamaica, and then the English twist was Lovers Rock. Well, mm-hmm. it was similar with my dad uh, and, and the music he was playing. Big Elvis fan, big Beatles fan. So as I was growing up, music was around the house. His musician friends would come over and rehearse. Mm-hmm. So it was there without yeah. me even knowing it, really. Yeah. 
And I didn't realise until later in life. I was like, how do I know all the words of Beatles songs and some Elvis tracks? And then my mum said, well, because we used to play those songs all the time yeah. in the house. And as a four, five, six-year-old kid, you pick them up you without knowing it. So that's how it happened. No way. And so, I mean, so you mentioned kind of growing up and spreading your wings and whatever. And I know that... You know, you moved to New York in the late 70s. Um, I mean, before that, were you into, in the UK, in the clubbing scene at all? And how did you kind of get into DJing? Yeah. Or was that when you were in New York? I was, I, I'm a fully qualified chef. So I studied as, uh, for four years. Mm-hmm. And was that the ambition then, to become a chef? I don't know, to be honest with you. It was, it's quite difficult when you're a young spring chicken and you just ventured out into the world and left school do you really know what you want to do mm-hmm. you know I always had a an idea that I wanted to do music mm-hmm. and I played instruments but I couldn't find anyone around me who wanted one to be in a band two to commit mm-hmm. three who could write songs and it's not easy forming or finding or being in a band Yeah, and then you know even being successful. Yeah. And at the time, my mother probably gave me good advice, which was, you've got to get a trade, you've got to get a proper job. Yeah. Remember my dad, as much as he was in a band, he had, he he worked for the, for the newspaper at the time. Mm -hmm. So the band was more of an enjoyment. I wanted to come, get out of school and go into doing music. And she said, no, she was like, you, you, you should get a trade. Mm. Um, and at that, that time, that's what you did. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, well, okay, my grandmother, my nan is a good cook, and I always used to hang out in the kitchen and work with her. So why didn't I do that? Yeah. Not realising it's incredibly hard work. I have <laughs> so much respect yeah. uh, for people who work in, in the kitchens. I mean, I would do split shifts mm-hmm. which I'd start at 10 in the morning till 3 yeah. in the afternoon doing lunch and then I'd start back again at 5.30 till 11 doing dinners and I'd have an hour either side of travel you know and, and I was doing that four days and then going to college one day and then I'd have Sunday and Monday off Yeah, and I'm like, man, if this is my life, I mean, I never saw no friends. Mm-hmm. I was When I had a day off, no one else did. <laughs> you know, it was pretty tough. Yeah. And th- things have, have, have changed in restaurants. I mean, you either do one shift or the other now. You don't do yeah. both. Yeah. But back in those days, they got you doing both. <laughs> so I was thrust into incredibly hard work at an early age. Mm. And, I, and out of it, it was a good... Look at the good side of everything. What was the good that came out of it? Mm-hmm. Hard work, discipline, teamwork. Yeah. Because you're uh, certainly working with, in all different areas of uh, of the kitchen. Um, understanding people. Mm-hmm. And these, and a few other things. Listening. Is it very important to listen? And looking up and taking experience from your elders. And all that that I've learned, years later, I put into my record labels. Yeah, yeah. And 
it's worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a great staff. They all know what they they need to do. They all do it well. They have the space to come up with ideas, creative ideas. Mm-hmm. They, I'm there to teach them, uh, to guide them, to help them, to support them, mm-hmm. uh, and I listen to them. And I, I I think those those values that I learned at an early age. Now I look back at them, and I really enjoy cooking. Um, so. It wasn't all bad. Yeah. At the time, try telling a 16, 17-year-old kid to 21, whatever, it's tough then because mm-hmm. you've got to live through it. But there's always a good side. Yeah. If you look deep enough, you'll find it. Yeah, and a, an amazing <sighs> grounding, like you say, to give you that discipline. And like you looking back now, you can see that that was that grounding that's given you the... Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people... A lot of younger people don't understand that. They want it now. They want everything now. Mm-hmm. And they don't put the hard work into it. Yeah. Uh, that's what I've come across anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, what prompted the move to, to New York in the late 70s? Was that part of the cookery experience at that point? So I came out of, I got my qualifications. Mm-hmm. I'm a fully qualified French cuisine, ooh la la, <laughs> chef. The reason why French cuisine, because that's generally known as the hardest food to cook because it's sauce-based. Mm-hmm. And sauce, you can curdle a sauce really quickly. Yeah. What it meant was I could go and work really in any kitchen in the world. Mm-hmm. But I stood there and thought, well, hang on, I'm going to... Let me just try. I've got nothing to lose. Let me just try music one more time mm-hmm. and see if that's the path that God gave me. Is that the path that I'm meant to be walking down for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And obviously it is. <laughs> but I took that work ethic and I hustled like mad. I wrote to every record label mm-hmm. for a job. And guess what? They all turned me down. <laughs> but that wasn't the end of that. So I went to New York mm-hmm. and I created my own job. Mm-hmm. I had a knowledge of how it worked in, in the record business, even if I didn't work in it. It's pretty straightforward. You sign a record, you release the record, and then the record goes in the chart. That's the basics yeah. of it, right? So when I went to New York, and because I'd wrote to every record company, I had their information, which mm-hmm. is contacts. Yeah. And I would go to record companies in America and say, that record that remember there's no internet there was no, there's nothing then yeah. that record that you just released by Run DMC or Beastie Boys or whoever I know how to I know the record company in the UK mm-hmm. I can connect you to yeah. and there can be a deal done so I created a job mm-hmm. for myself yeah and it worked <laughs> I signed a record from Profile Records mm-hmm. to Champion Records mm-hmm. And Champion Records then gave me a job. Yeah, yeah. And then I came back to England, and then our first act I signed. So now I know all the American labels, mm-hmm. and now I'm in England working for a record company called Champion Records, and the first record I signed was by uh, two people called Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Mm-hmm. The Fresh Prince is Will Smith. Yeah. And they did a song called The Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. Mm-hmm. And I was 
sitting there listening to it, and I was like, the arrangement's wrong, the mix is wrong. And the guy who hired me, Mel Medalli, what a man, what a gentleman, gave me the opportunity to go in the studio. And because I had a bit of musical knowledge with my dad, mm -hmm. I understood arrangement structure of music. So I could figure out what was wrong with that mix, remix it with an engineer that they gave me yeah. uh, in the studio. And it was a hit. It was a big, it was a top ten pop hit. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, this is my path now. I've yeah. I've found my calling. I, I I didn't want I wasn't out to be a DJ. That comes a lot later. Yeah. I I'm an I was an A and R man. I love finding music, listening to music. Music's you know my is my soul. Mm -hmm. It lives in my soul. So it was the reward was amazing. Not financially, just knowing that I can I can do this. This is it, and I still do it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, I mean, you mentioned Run DMC and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and there was Salt and Pepper in there as well. I yeah. think. Um, and this was all new stuff that the UK hadn't necessarily, like you said back then, no internet or anything like that. The UK hadn't really been exposed to this kind of stuff, and you're bringing it over and generating this audience for this music. Man, thinking about it now, wow. I was Profile Records head of A&R, mm -hmm. which was run DMC. I was hired by CBS to set up Def Jam. So that was BC Boys, Public Enemy, LL Cool J, and so on. Mm -hmm. I was DJing on in a block of flats in Peckham on Kiss FM when it was illegal playing all these tunes mm -hmm. that no one had. Mm -hmm. And then I was <laughs> managing London All-Star Breakers and Mastermind, which was four DJs on eight turntables. I was so thrust into hip-hop. It's unbelievable. Now I think about it, I was mm -hmm. the go-to guy. And that came out of New York. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you were talking about... Uh, a guy from South London mm -hmm. suddenly thrust into a hit in the the birth, kind of the birth. There was Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out. Mm -hmm. Obviously, then these were the DJs, Grandmaster Flash. I suppose the second wave was Run, Beastie, Def Jam Profile. You yeah. know, that. so I was. The, they were sending me all these records. I was the go-to guy. Yeah, and then you know, so I was kind of placing them. London Records took Run DMC. The deal was done with CBS at Def Jam, but they didn't know how to work it, so I was working it, driving around, taking Beastie Boys in to shows. No, remember, none of these acts were known then. Mm -hmm. This isn't now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is when you get a new act and yeah. you're, you, CBS want to take these acts to these clubs. Mm-hmm. And they signed Def Jam, so I was the guy. Yeah. But now looking back at it, and you talking about it, I never really, really think about it, man. <laughs> it was, it was quite, it was good times. Yeah. yeah. Actually, it was some funny moments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As he looks into the middle distance, remembering. Yeah. Well, it was just weird how I ended up that go-to guy for hip-hop. Yeah. I mean, 
people like Westwood would come to me for tunes. I'd, I remember walking up like fucking loads and loads of stairs, Kiss FM, because we were pirate with my yeah. record box. I was like, man, you know. And you never knew how many people was listening. Like, yeah. I don't know how many people are listening to this <laughs> bloody podcast. Are you out there? <laughs> Hello? Is anyone listening? <laughs> So I mean, yeah, you're on you're on Kiss, and we have spoken to on this podcast as well. Gordon Mack, who obviously set that up as a pirate, and and like one of our early you spoke episodes. to Gordon Mack, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, how is Gordon? Mack? Yeah, he's great. He's running a, uh, a station called My Soul now in in um, in London. I think it's got Peckham Council flat. Yeah, <laughs> nothing's Gordon Mack and Lyndon T. Uh-huh. They were the guys. Yeah, yeah. Ah oh, man, Gordon Mack. Yeah, he's a legend. I'd love to see him. Yeah, he's great. It was a great interview. Um, but yeah, so I mean, let's not get distracted. I want to go on to like, so you're on, you're on Kiss, you're center of hip hop in the UK, and then you know Ibiza happens in '87. You go on that fateful trip, you know yourself, Danny Rampling et al. Um, you know what was what 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 prompted that trip, and what was your experience of the island before you went out there? Was it a known quantity? Had you been before? Can't remember a thing. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking. No, uh, Ibiza. That came next, I suppose. Yeah. What happened in Ibiza? So, it was my birthday, and two of my best friends... At that time, you would go to Ibiza and work the summer. You still do. Mm -hmm. There's no difference, you know. You want to go to Mykonos, you want to go to... Whether it's Greece, Croatia, Spain, wherever you want to go to, whatever island... You go and work for the summer. Yeah. And my friends did. I wanted to go and see my friends. I missed them, actually. It was it was Ian and, and Paul. Or Ian and, and... Ian and Paul. It was Ian St. Paul mm-hmm. and Trevor Fung. And, you know, you, you know they're having the time of their lives. And you, you're young. You're in Ibiza. You, and I'd been to Ibiza before. Mm. Back up. I'd been there... Three or four years before, I took yeah. Divine to Ibiza <laughs> when I was working right. at Rush Release. Yeah, you know, and he did a performance. So I'd seen Ibiza, uh, you know, in in a great way. Mm-hmm. Um, taking a recording artist out there, doing shows, uh, being invited to parties. So you know, I'm working away, and I'm like, man, I want to get out to Ibiza. All right, is an excuse. Remember, I'm working for a record company. Mm-hmm. Take a two-week holiday as you get your annual two weeks. Go to Ibiza. All right, guys, I'm coming. I'm coming for my birthday. I'm going to have a birthday party. Right. So then I reached out to a few friends here, and I said, look, I'm going to go to Ibiza. I want to come. And they came. Mm-hmm. Johnny Walker, good friend, Nicky Holloway, and... Nicky Holloway bought Danny Ramplin, mm-hmm. uh, who I didn't know at the time. Met up with Ian, met up with Trevor, and they're like, you sense that there was change. Mm-hmm. I sensed it straight away. And I'm like, all right, you know, where are we going? And they've been there the all summer, and I'm like, we're going to Amnesia. And I'd, I'd been to Coup, Pasha, Glories, Manhattan's, S Paradise. I've been to all of them. I've been to Amnesia, but this is where everyone who was in a certain circle would go. Mm -hmm. So I went, and 
I was like, wow, man, why is this so different to the year before and the year before and the year before that? Mm -hmm. Guess what it was? <laughs> so it began with an E. <laughs> it's a little white pill popped up and suddenly you're like, you know, I hadn't done drugs until that moment. Mm. It's a strange, strange, because... What do you say? What do you do? How do you think? Most importantly, you know. You know that you shouldn't, or you're told mm -hmm. you shouldn't do them, right? Mm -hmm. It's a fine line. All I can say was, and from my heart, and just to be honest and truthful, it changed me. It opened my mind in a creative space. I know I was always creative, I, it, but it just, it, it gave me, and I'm certainly not here to promote anything mm -hmm. other than music, but it, it brought something to the table that was different at that time. Yeah. And it, it, at that crossroads, it worked. So, and it worked for a lot of people. <laughs> Hence the, the big change. Yeah. And the biggest change out of the whole thing, I think when I look back, there was clubs, there was electronic music, there was the DJ in the corner, mm -hmm. there was the guys at the bar, there was the girls dancing around their handbag, and no one really was focused and was into the music or the DJ. Mm -hmm. This was the birth of electronic music as we know it today. In that moment, I was like, oh my God, you all look at the DJ. You're all focused on the music. The euphoria of what was going down. The comradeship, whether it was a guy that you didn't know next to you or a beautiful, any girl. Mm -hmm. Everyone was beautiful. It was toe-to-toe, -toe, all in looking the same way at to, at, to the DJ, into the music, into the scene, and felt you felt great. Mm -hmm. That was the birth of club culture as we know it today. That was changed the landscape of music. That changed the landscape of Britain. Mm -hmm. You know that 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 was it. And it came out of this remarkable situation of being there and going. This is it. I'm I'm on this. This is it. not just me. It was a lot of people. I was I I you know I I just came from a background. I was driven along with Ian to go. We're going to start a nightclub. We're going to do. We didn't own a nightclub. Listen, you don't have to own anything. You can go and do a deal that makes sense for both parties. Mm -hmm. So we went to a nightclub. We hired the night. We paid the rent. And we worked it. We promoted it. We bought all. Ian was, was myself and Ian. I was DJing, playing all the music. Ian was out front, the promoter, mm -hmm. uh, and we were out talking about it. And we just built it up. That's how you do it. You don't have to own the club. Mm -hmm. We didn't ever own anything. Yeah. And it just grew and grew and grew. And it started spreading around the rest of the country. And we would go up north and play in the Hacienda. 
we did a tour, we came down here to Brighton, we played everywhere, and people were like, man, what is this? Yeah. And that's how it all started. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, that's that vibe that you brought back from Ibiza and set up in your club nights like Future at the Soundshaft and later Spectrum at Heaven. And Land of Oz. Yeah, and Land of Oz. I mean, was there a specific musical direction yeah. you wanted to take things in for those parties? Yeah, the Future was the Future Club, which was a Thursday night, small little venue with me and Nancy Noise, was based on the sound of Balearic. Mm-hmm. What is the sound of Balearic? mean it's a collection of all kinds of music rock pop house reggae hip-hop it was whatever worked for a story of music that was balearic spectrum and land of oz was pure acid house yeah it was the birth of acid house Mm -hmm. that's it was chicago house it was the new school English house. It was a Belgium new beat. Mm-hmm. That's what that was. That was full of... They were both full on, but in two different ways. So we were running two clubs, and then Spectrum got... Spectrum turn ended up on the front page of the, of the Sun National newspaper. So that two weeks, we closed it, reopened it in the same venue with just a different name called The Land of Oz... <laughs> And that went on for another year. It was exactly yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And then it was starting to pop up everywhere. So then I'd be... Remember, I was DJing on a Thursday at Future and a Monday on Spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I had Friday and Saturday off. So suddenly I was an A&R man, mm-hmm. working, signing music, developing acts. I wasn't a DJ until that moment. And then suddenly, I had... A, I had a, see, I had tunes that no one had. Mm-hmm. I could... I would source, I I picked up the ball and run with it big time. Yeah. So much so that I think I was the only one with the ball because all the DJs would come to to the where I was playing and watch. They'd watch me because they're trying to watch what records they were <laughs> and I was covering the records up over, which what I learned that in New York. Yeah. You When you find a tune that no one has, you cover it up because that's what makes people want to come and see you and not the other DJ. That was the game. Yeah. So I had all the music and I was sourcing music. I had a clear, focused direction on what future was and what spectrum was. Mm-hmm. So I had all the music and I was playing. That's why I was getting booked on a Friday and Saturday. So I'm doing all these raves, mm-hmm. you know, in the fields on Friday and Saturday. Yeah. Planet Future, and then came this moment for me where it was like, wow, man. I got asked to go to another country and DJ, and I'm like, hang on, you want me, you're going to pay me and pay my flight accommodation to go to another country and DJ playing what I play here? Yeah, we're going to do that. So then I was like, okay, well, maybe this is what, this is it. Yeah. Really, I'm born to be a producer DJ. Mm-hmm. And I was fighting it for a bit. I kept turning things down and I was trying to focus on the record label. And I was like, well, maybe the smart man in the room is the man who goes and does that. And then he has access to all different kinds of music and people are giving you music to sign. So I said to my boss at the time, I said, listen, I think it's time for me to move on. Mm. 
I think it's time for me to to be fully independent, not work for anyone, work for myself, which is a big step yeah. to just say I'm I'm no longer I don't you know there's no holiday pay, there's no yeah. uh, sick pay. Yeah. You're on your own. Yeah. And I uh, and it's it's a anyway for that one listener who's listening. <laughs> well, actually, it's two probably now because he's invited his wife into the room. Are you there? Still listening, right? You better not have dozed off. The one listener is the, the most the, important. Yeah, that, that you better not have dozed off. Get your wife and your kids in because what I'm going to tell you is important. It's very difficult to go self-employed. A lot of feelings. Of thoughts, but if you have, if you do it, the reward on the other side of the line is very, is a beautiful moment because now you're truly on your own. And what I felt when I quit my job and suddenly I was free, mm-hmm. it's down to me. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? How am I going to make money? And I, you've got to love what you do. That's also key. You got you got. It's more than a job. So music isn't a job for me. So I did that. I'm now. I felt you just feel different. You can't explain. I can try. You feel free, mm-hmm. nervous, scared, but all that doesn't matter because you have the belief in yourself. I knew I could do it. Otherwise, I won't fucking quit a job that was paying you know you 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 know you can do it and you don't want to live with we're all there's always a moment there's a moment in everyone's life i try and teach my son this that there will be a regret there has to be yeah right but what is that regret and what is that moment where you go all right if I don't do this now in my life, I will probably regret this moment because I, I, I know it's time, I sense it's time, but I don't have the balls to do it. Mm-hmm. And that is a could turn out to be a big regret because my path in life could have went, it would have went in a different direction. And here's the upside, as I said earlier on in the interview, look for the good. Mm-hmm. Hey, I quit my job. I went and tried DJing. It didn't work out. I've signed all these acts. I'll go and work for another record company. Mm-hmm. All right. At least I've given it a go. Yeah. And at least I've got experience. And at least I've got knowledge. Yeah. And at least I can walk into that other record company and say, what well, I can give you. None of these lot can do that. Mm-hmm. I can break records as a DJ. I broke records as a DJ. You know, I, I put... put that number one record in, in the UK, Shaman Move Any Mountain, mm-hmm. the Shaman were an alternative band, and Mr. C was in my club. I put them two together, mm-hmm. and that wasn't... I didn't release that record. I did the mix. Yeah. I named the mix after my club. Mm-hmm. D-Mob, they call it Acid. KLF, The Orb, all came out of my club. Yeah. So I could go and get another job you know I, 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 but it comes with confidence and self-belief mm-hmm. and that's where I was at that time yeah yeah hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I mean, obviously, you've started to get success, like you said, and you're, you're getting booked to play internationally and all these things. And I just want to move forward into, um, you know, the sound that you're, you know, you're massively famous for in terms of trance. And you brought that to the masses when in 94, Goa mix. you dropped what is now seen as one of the greatest central mixes of all time, the Goa mix. Um, with all the elements that it combined, trance, drum and bass, scores from movie soundtracks, it sounded like nothing else that come before. It's completely mind-blowing at the time. I mean, what was your inspiration for that mix? And did you set out to achieve something that would create this kind of cult classic status? I don't know if there was an inspiration behind the mix. It was just how I felt at the time. Mm -hmm. That's the first answer to that part of that question. The second answer, I didn't set out to do anything. Mm -hmm. It was how I felt. It was just natural for me. I've grown up with my father watching film mm-hmm. so it was always there it was yeah. just natural it was the timing nothing had been done like that before so I don't even know if the timing was right but it felt right mm-hmm. and it was my musical influences you know so and the melody and the structure and the arrangement and the key and the feeling those elements of how I put them together and, and saw them and how I felt when I came to the mix. It was pretty, it's pretty strange. I didn't overthink it. I just came to the table. Radio 1 asked me to do an essential mix and then they were in conversations with me about being a resident for the Radio 1 essential mix. And it's like, what does that mean? They goes, well, you can go to 12, you'll do 12 shows, you'll travel, 12 shows in... 12 places. What, anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. I was like, okay, I kind of like that. Can I go to Cuba? Yeah, go wherever you want. So that was interesting. Um, And then the Goa mix was, it set where I wanted to be musically at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew it was different. I knew it would stand out. I knew that a lot of people have never heard 
those songs because I'd there's a reason why I called it the Goa mix. I'd just come I'd I'd come back a year before from Goa mm-hmm. and was into into what's called Psy trance now, but it was Goa trance at the time. It was really underground music. Mm-hmm. So I knew that uh, what I was coming to the table with was music that very in England at the time very few people had heard. I knew that because of my love for film, film had never been touched on in the in that in that space in dance music space. So I knew the elements that I had were fresh and different and new, mm-hmm. and that's really you know what it was what it was about. As a, again, you know, I wasn't overthinking nothing. So it was what it was. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, looking back, people can point to that as kind of a signifier as like, you know, again, the birth of that sound in terms of getting it on people's radars and into people's ears. You know, no one had ever really heard all the tunes and the way they were put together before like that. Yeah. It's definitely a template for trance. It's, and most DJs, you start with the intro, you got that musical intro, you got that moment. That's, it became the template for dark for DJing with an, and that arrangement and those moments because out of that trance music certainly added a lot more emotion to it and feeling yeah and I mean you mentioned there as well about that world tour that residency tour that you did for the essential mix in 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 99 and you know every single one of those mixes is kind of has taken on a a mythical status in its own right in terms of the tracks that were on that and obviously that was during your your residency at cream as well which i want to kind of come on to kind of both of these things really um you know if we start with cream first you know obviously you've got a long association with that club and that brand you know firstly from your time in the annex and then later in the courtyard and the residency i mean when you signed up for that residency um no other dj was really playing the same venue every week in the uk you know and building a community and pushing a very particular sound with signature tracks that could only really be attributed to one person in a certain venue I mean, can you tell us about those years and what sense were you trying to achieve in, in that club, particularly in the courtyard at Cream? What were you trying to build there? Um, by the time I got to Cream, I had experience and knowledge of residents, mm-hmm. real residents DJs. So when I was in New York, I first came across the idea of a true resident DJ when I, went, when I used to go to Paradise Garage. Paradise Garage and listen to Larry Levan mm. and then I'd you know I'd hear Harry put his records together how he would play and then that led me to my first residency really was apart from Spectrum and Land of Oz and Future outside of my own things was Ministry of Sound you know when I when Ministry of Sound opened I was the resident every Friday <clears throat> so I tried to build on that concept of having my own sound brand, whatever you want to call it, brand of music, sound that I played, tunes that no one had, the arrangement of the set, the story that I wanted to tell, the feelings that I want to, wanted to invoke, and how I wanted to leave you in a euphoric state led to cream. <laughs> it was the, the perfect time. Mm. It, it was coming. It was all leading to somewhere. 
And there's something special about Liverpool for me, and and will always be. And it's just, even though it was in Liverpool, there were, the the crowd weren't just from Liverpool; they were from all over mm-hmm. the country. They would come in the buses, and, and they would stand in the same place every Saturday night, wherever that was. And I would acknowledge them mm-hmm. through pointing waving, smiling, whatever it was. And I'd start to make songs, remixes for that space. And then other producers would start, who would come, would start doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I would now be in this position where I would have people making music that fitted my sound. Mm -hmm. My, My sound is a very melodic, emotional sound that you can sense, feel and hear in the Goa mix. That's me. Mm-hmm. So the Goa, now it was literally the Goa mix live. It was, it was that sound, obviously new records, new music, Manson, wide open space, bullet in the gun, not over yet. Some, some, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, you've got CDs are out. You can, just, you can get the sound. And just ramping it up to the end where it's full on and it worked. It worked because there was a team of people behind it who was great. Mm-hmm. Darren Hughes, James Barton, the Barton family, uh, the staff of Cream, mm-hmm. the sound system. They, they, they gave me the creative space to really play as a DJ. 12 till 3 every Saturday night. Mm-hmm. I committed... That I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go anywhere. I think I took two years. I think I had four Saturdays off, mm. something like six, something like that. Every Saturday we'd drive up. I'd go to Chelsea home games and then get in a car and have a, and then they'd have a car waiting for me and then I'd I'd drive to Liverpool, <laughs> you know. And and if I was playing somewhere in England on a Friday, oh, that was that was a whole other story actually. If you wanted me to play at your club on a Friday night, you had to get me tickets to go and see Chelsea the next day. So if I was playing Leicester Friday, I would go Leicester-Chelsea Saturday afternoon and then we would go to Cream. Uh-huh. And I had a, it, was, it was a good thing, actually. It was, it was a, when I look back at it, because I got to see my team and, mm-hmm. and I got to play all over the country and... It's fun. You mentioned there as well about that connection you would have with those moments and, and acknowledging people in the crowd and that community that you built and, you know, the, the, the tracks that you were playing that became your tracks. Like, no one else would really play them because they were seen as yours and kind of untouchable. You know, things like Taste Experience, Sun yeah. Salt and... They were making them for me. Yeah. You know, the, these the, the, who's Taste Experience? Out of the blue, I, they, I, I, they, these guys reached out, and I was like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And you know what, right? They don't make those records no more. It's so hard to find those. That style, which was my style, then trance blew up, and mm-hmm. it became the number one sound in the world, and then, all, and then there was all this alternative trance music. I mean, Dutch trance. Germ trance. It, it was different sound of trance. It mm-hmm. wasn't. It's, a lot of the a lot a lot of the the trance music is shit, man. I mean, it, it's just 
call it what it is, right? It, 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 and it's because it's it's not made like it was. Mm. If it was made like it was, it would still be a, str- a strong, I believe, a much stronger sound than it is at the moment. It's the same sound, same arrangement, same, same cheesy lines. It's like, get over it. Push the boat out. Try and be experimental. Mm. And... Yeah, the bands were making acts, artists, producers were making tunes, uh, and I would support them. I'd play them every week. Mm-hmm. I would. There was, there was, you know, situations going down with a local record store, and they're like, "Where can you get these records?" I'd hook them up. I'd say to the record store, "Here's the artist," and they, they'd take a, three boxes of, of of their vinyl. You know, mm-hmm. it was again, it was. All these things were moving parts that all came together. Yeah. So it was a win-win for all of us. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go and play those tunes on the essential mixes mm-hmm. and on all these others, and their records would start to build up. They would sell records. And that was the true art of being a resident. Only residents can do that. And I learned that from my stint at ministry, but more importantly, from when I was in New York. Yeah, and, you know, in terms of that world tour of that essential mix, you know, were you, were you picking the places that you wanted? You said you mentioned yeah. you wanted to go to Cuba, so how did that kind of work out? As the first DJ to play in China, in Shanghai. Mm. Wow, that was crazy, man. Uh, no, so, you know, I, I'd, I'd look at... And, of course, I'd done cream fields and homelands mm. and blah, 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 you know. Obviously, Beta, you know... Uh, but I wanted to spice up. I wanted a little bit of edge. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going here. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to China and Cuba? You know, yeah, I, 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 I'm going. We would set it all up. Radio One were graceful enough to go, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't say no. And was there ever any kind of trepidation from you from playing tracks? On the, to a mass audience on the radio that were very special to you in Cream? You know, was there ever anything like, well, I can't play that because that's only ever played that live in Cream or nah. anything like that, no? Music's, music's about sharing. Mm-hmm. Why would I want to make or have a record that I'm not playing to anyone? You know, if you, if you, if you hear me at uh, Creamfields or wherever, it only makes you want to come and see me in Cream because... You know, you have access to me in here, live, live. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the residency ended um, at Cream and, you know, the subsequent move was to home. Um, I mean, it's huge news at the time. It was obviously a, being a super club, in, uh, as super clubs were at that, in that era, in the centre of, of London. So, I mean, can you tell us why that was the right time to uh, do that? And, home was the... Home was the, the next... That was the next big, big thing. It was yeah. me and Danny Tenegula. It was the centre of London. It was well, the city that I was born. It was me literally coming home after spending years of travelling all over. And, you know, I hadn't played in London since Spectrum and Land of Oz. And it was the right moment. You know, I did two years at Cream. They wanted me to stay. I couldn't do both. Mm. So I wanted to go home. It's tiring <laughs> as well. Every Saturday, three hours up there, three hours back on the sun. You know, you get home at five on a 
Sunday evening, you know, it was your one day that you kind of evening that you had to yourself, and then it's back into the studio next day. So mm. I'm like, well, hang on, you know, I mean, London now it was like glamorous. It was, is this a completely different vibe, London? Yeah, it's the, yeah. the, it's the, London's the capital of Europe. It's like what Rome used to be. It's London. London was you get stars. You do. You have. Everyone would be there then. They wouldn't be tra- It was different yeah. to Liverpool. And I mean, w- were you trying to do something different in terms of what sound you were playing there? Was it a conscious decision no, to take I, it I, further? I, 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 I wasn't, again, I didn't overanalyze it. I had a sound and that was my sound. Yeah. We had coaches coming from all over Britain. I mean, there, 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 there was like six to eight coaches of people coming all over. Mm-hmm. You, let's go to London on a Saturday night and hear Paul Oakenfold DJing at, at the biggest nightclub at that time in Britain. Mm-hmm. Same sound system. It was crazy and it, it was intense because the, the way the booth was situated, the DJ booth, and everyone around him, they were clinging on and looking at you. It was like you were really going into the eye. Yeah, it was uh, pretty full on. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would queue around the block on the opening night to get in there, so I was there that night. I do remember it well. You did? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, terrifying thinking that we've come all this way. Are we going to get in? They're asking, they're quizzing people on the door. What are you here for? You know, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. So it wasn't easy to get in. No, it was a great time, a great time, a great era. And I mean, so you know, during that period, you you know, we're talking about touring the world and. Particularly, you're touring in America is like where you reside now, anyway. But like back then, dance music didn't necessarily draw the crowds as much as it did elsewhere, kind of around the world. I mean, you can definitely, and I'm talking about you as an individual. You can definitely be attributed with reintroducing dance music to the US and building it into the success that it is now. I mean, did you look at the US and think? The time is right for this? Oh, sure. Yeah. I had a plan. It's time to break America. Yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely a time to break America. I toured with you too. I watched carefully how they did it. It was ready for me to go to the next step of my career and, and ready for me to have a challenge like no other. So I came to America. There was a record deal on the table for a mixed compilation. So you, you had a record to support you. And mm-hmm. I, I spent... Oh man, I spent a long time living out of a suitcase. <laughs> I did over a hundred shows in a, in a year. It was relentless, yeah. but I knew it was the only way for me to break America. I had to put the work in. <laughs> you know, you, you 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 can't go to America and do New York, Miami, Chicago, LA, whatever. You got to go Birmingham, Alabama. Alaska, you gotta go. Yeah. You gotta go. Milwaukee, Cleveland, you gotta go everywhere. And I did, and I did it again and again and again. And the reward uh, were, were, were for me was my mix compilation. It's been the biggest mix compilation in America. It was sold over three hundred thousand mix compilations. Mm-hmm. It's called Transport. Yeah, I then set myself up for my artist album to come. It it was fresh for America. It, it it was for me. It was straightforward. I mean, it was basically, you know, you see that now America are at the doors opening and they want to know. It was small underground parties, but you go back the next time and 
you're playing a 500, next time it'll be a 1,000, next mm. time it's 1,500, and you're like, you know it's happening. Yeah. So it was only a matter of time. And most importantly, it timing, even before I did my residency, mm-hmm. I did a three-year residency in, in Las Vegas mm-hmm. every Saturday, and that was 2008, 9, 10. Yeah. Or 7, 8, 9, whatever. But that was down the timing. Yeah. You get it right, it happens. You get it wrong... You missed the boat. Yeah, I mean, it just shows that kind of having that vision because that's almost set the template for those um, kind of Vegas-style residencies. Oh, for sure. There was no resident. There was no... wasn't even proper clubs. It was a ice and utopia with side clubs off of the strip. There was no... None of the... Maybe one... The one... Anyway, to the point, the hotels didn't have nightclubs. Mm-hmm. The hotels were gambling casinos wasn't interested so I was doing Saturday night 5,000 people at the Palms and then I would do the following year I was doing two double gigs I was doing Saturday day at the pool party at the Hard Rock and Saturday night at Palms I was like you know but it was great it was you know it was you knew that change was coming and you were at the forefront of change and I enjoyed it and look back at it it, it ran its course for me. It, be, it was becoming commercial. It was becoming cheesy. Other hotels were opening. It was going EDM. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't me. And I'm like, okay, I've done what I need to do here. Yeah. It's time, you know, I, I want to now go back and travel the world. Because I hadn't travelled, you know, and I love travelling and seeing the world. I'm so lucky for a box of records. I've seen the world. I've been around the world bunch of times for a box of records <laughs> so you know i'm like and nothing's gonna last forever people don't realize this is there three listeners now we've got three <laughs> three of you out there may maybe the guy and his and his wife the wife's <laughs> called her friend and now she's listening she's got so to, to the third listener <laughs> nothing lasts forever if, trust me on this so enjoy the moment uh, why it lasts and I realised that and thought okay you know it's over Vegas is over now for me I've done it I'm moving on I want to get back out and take this opportunity to go and see the world again Yeah, and that was it and I mean yeah like you say I think you can get a frustration can build in that if you're trying to control something and keep that moment as it was as you've loved it and it's changing you know, let it go and move on. Well, first of all, you don't want to control nothing because change mm-hmm. is around you every day. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it, it, it's the reason now you stay current and and on top of what you do as a person is to embrace change. Now, mm-hmm. change, you're not necessarily going to like change, and change, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Some of the new technology that I have to work with, I don't like. But embrace it, deal with it, and move on. And that's what will keep you current and fresh. And so Vegas had run its course. I was on a different adventure then. Yeah. And what was that next adventure? What was your... My next adventure was to go and travel and (laughs) see friends, hang out, you know, people that have booked me from around the world for many years and go and see them again, go Mm -hmm. and play to a new audience that hadn't heard me to do some music in studios in different countries and do fresh collaborations Mm -hmm. you know 
like you know last night I was, was he DJed in Amsterdam and the day before I was in Amsterdam and went in the studio and tried out a track and saw how it went and yeah. you never know you know get back to to that we've talked about your career you've done all these amazing things um and you've recently finished your autobiography which is out soon um obviously writing that i'd imagine it offered that kind of period of reflection looking back well first of all if i can interrupt <laughs> i didn't write it. i'm dyslexic mm. and the, it's my second autobiography mm-hmm. and i was approached to do it and I thought about it, well, why don't I really want to do it? Well, you know, what? If I'm going to do it, if I'm going to do anything, there needs to be a message and a strong direction behind it. And the the book uh, that comes out in August is that. It, it's a strong indication on a work... Look, I'm a working-class guy from, from London. I'm dyslexic. What I got, I worked incredibly hard for. And what, and you have to put in the time. You have to, if you want to be the best, you've got to practice, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. You have to. That's the rules. That's how it works. I'm not making the rules up. Speak to Michael Jordan or, or Tiger Woods or, mm-hmm. you know, or Ronaldo. It, 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 that's how it works. So I poured my life into music. I've gone through... I've given up personal relationships and music. Mm-hmm. Music is my true love. It's my only true love. When I look back at even at relationships that have failed because of it's been my fault. Failed because of music. So the book is that story. The book is the kid in the classroom who was insecure and was getting the piss taken out of him because he couldn't fucking spell or he couldn't, you know, when you, you have to stand up in the class, right, you you, you, you read this. you read, And I would go down and hide and the insecurities would come out. Mm-hmm. The book is that you could be that person. And if you are that person, your life is your life and you don't have to end up like what you think that person would be. You can walk into that room 20 years later and own that fucking room, and you will mm-hmm. own that room if you find who you are. So that's what the book's about. It, it, and if the one person reads it and, and takes something from it, then then so be it. Yeah. And I hope many people read it, uh, you know, but, but then I found what I needed to do with the book. What was the story of the book? What's the underlying message? Not me hanging out with Madonna or you 2 or Nelson Mandela or all these amazing moments. It comes from that kid in the corner. So, yeah, so that's that's thinking, thinking, thinking. That was where it all came from. Mm-hmm. You, so you can do it. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of leads us on to what is the final question really that we ask everyone on the podcast obviously we are house culture and you are on the house culture podcast today and you are obviously one of the architects of the dance music scene across the world we've talked a lot about reflecting and looking back and what these things have brought you in your life but if you just wanted if you could sum it up (laughs) what is how would you sum up your career and what it has brought you in your life 
hard work, happiness, love? Well, I mean, love. I gave up a lot. I think anyone who's the best at what they do uh, or strive, let me rephrase that because someone's going to slag me off. Anyone who strives to be the best at what they want to do mm-hmm. has to give up a lot. I wish I didn't, but I've given up family time. I've given up time with my friends. I've given up moments that I should have been there. And I'm not proud of it, mm. to be honest sure. I don't think you can be proud of those times. But I think I had understanding from those people. Probably were pissed off with me. But it's me. It is who I am. And I found music. Uh, music found me. I didn't find music. Uh, you know, as a five, as I said at the top of the interview, as a five, six-year-old boy, uh, you know, I didn't, it, just watching my dad play and going into the bedroom, you know, they could only afford to go out on a Saturday night and we'd go to the workman's club and my mum would be dressed up, my dad would have this... It was that moment. Yeah. It was two hard-working parents that had one night that they could go out and there's music around in the house and we're all running around, me, my brother and sister. So it found me, grabbed me, it, it, it threw me against the wall and said you're going to marry me for the rest of my life. And I, and I and now I'm still here, a single, <laughs> following this fucking music around the world. <laughs> oh, God, help, help me, please. And I, I, I've had a fantastic time. Joy, you know, I've had like every person out there, you know. Death, heartbreak, there's just feelings at the end of the day. It's all, it's just growing up. Mm-hmm. It's feelings, right? That you, knowledge, experience, uh, dealing with those things. So I don't know. I mean, it, I, I don't know. To sum it all up, it, it's some, a mixture of everything. It, mm-hmm. It's to sum, to sum it all up is just growing up. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing I will leave you on. That I want the six listener. <laughs> it's your job, the six listener. Show me the book, because I've never found this book, and I don't and and I don't agree with this book that society have written that we, as a race, need to do certain things at certain times in our life. What is a midlife crisis? Who says? At 40, you should do this. Who says at 50, you should do this? Who says at 60, you're old? You're not. It's just a fucking number. You're not, it's what's inside of you. So I don't, I don't live by that book of rules. Can I, can I play football? Yes. Can I play football like a 20-year-old? No. Right? But I can still play football. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't live by the rules and regulations that society put in place. And I'm talking just about health, fun, love, honour, respect, dignity, things that we know are there, right? Mm-hmm. But things that you're, that you're not told, you know. So if that makes any sense, 
because <laughs> he does to me. He makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah. to me. So I'm still out. I'm doing my job. Thank you to anyone who who likes my music. Um, I love doing what I'm doing. That's it, really. Well, cheers to that. Cheers to that, buddy. <laughs> Perfect place to end. Thank you so much. Cheers, Matthew. Cheers. Thank you. House Culture. Cheers to that indeed. Wow. I must geek out for a moment and say that was a very special one for me. Azoki is one of my genuine DJ heroes. When I started up this podcast, I had a dream list of guests. And I must say that Paul Oakenfold was at the top of that list. So it's fantastic to sit down with him. And I want to thank him for taking the time and for being so accommodating amongst his hectic schedule. I'm sure you're all as excited as I am about his new autobiography that's out now. So make sure you pick that up for a deeper dive into his illustrious career in dance music. Now those regular listeners amongst you might have noticed that we didn't get a chance to add Paul's choice of tracks to our House Culture Perfect playlist that you can find on Spotify. So I've taken it upon myself to choose a few from his amazing journey through dance music. For the catalyst I've chosen Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. You heard him talk about it in the interview as it was one of the first times he was let loose in the studio to put his own spin on what went on to be the first UK hit for a couple of guys called DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. For the floor filler, it has to be his perfecto remix of Manson's Wide Open Space, a track that truly summed up the courtyard dance floor during his two-year residency at Cream, where he'd often play it as the second track of his set. On the sunset tip, I've added Vangelis' Rachel's song from the Blade Runner soundtrack, but probably more well-known for its appearance on Paul's legendary Goa mix. For the tearjerker, you heard him mention this one in the interview as a track that was made specifically for him during his time at Cream. It's Somersault by Taste Experience, a beautiful slice of melodic trance that reduced the courtyard dance floor to tears when he played it on the final night of his Cream residency. And the last tune, of course, for anyone who has been privileged enough to witness Oki weave his magic behind the decks, whether it be in the courtyard at Cream in Liverpool, the dance floor at home in London's Leicester Square, or the huge festival arenas at Creamfields, it could only be CJ Bollins, the prophet. After whipping the crowd into a frenzy, when Oki pulls this out of his bag, all bets are off. It's a track so tough, it sounds like the very fabric of reality is being pulled apart, and is a genuine Oki only classic. Once you've got that playlist busting out of your speakers, your job now is to help support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting and sharing, or by leaving us a review. We love to hear your feedback here at HCHQ, and for those that are kind enough to take the time, we'll 100% give you a shout out on a future episode. This time, I'm going to be massively self-indulgent and say hi to my better half, the beautiful Lucy Clark, who, without her love and support, this podcast would absolutely not be possible. We've also had some wicked times dancing together to Oakenfold over the years. Particularly memorable is that time he dropped Amoeba Assassin's Pile Driver in Renaissance and he picked her out of the crowd with some wild dance moves and a big smile. What times they were. I love you, babe. Then if you want to share the love and keep up to date with all things house music, come on over to join us on Instagram at HouseCultureNet or love that hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally... You can always get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening, rave safe, and see you next time.
Cross Culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.